I trust you ate all the Trader Joe maple cookies out there and there are none left. I'm so grateful to be here. Isn't it wonderful to be here for our Lord's Supper? And we get to remember and dwell. And today we're just going to think about just remembering the Savior. So would you join with me as we just dwell and just sit and meditate and pause our souls um, and our lives just to look at the Christ. Father, we pray your Bible says, your scripture says that we with unveiled face continually behold the glory of Christ and we are being changed, the scripture says, from image to image as we behold this Christ. Lord, I pray today, this morning, we would behold him, that he would show himself beautiful again, that our hearts if we have been wandering from you, have been uh, brought back home to him in his kindness and in his love. And Father, I pray if there are those who don't know you, who have not bowed the knee, who have not surrendered their life, I pray that this would be the morning they do it. I pray that you would show them the folly of resisting a good and gracious and kind king. The folly of resisting forgiveness all on the shed blood of Christ. And so we pray, Father, that we would never leave this tree, never leave this cross, dwell here, We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. He bore it all. He bore it all. First Peter chapter 2. Would you turn with me? We've been going through First Peter, and I've, uh, I, I'm a little too old to go to our college and career group, but I go as part of the staff, and I, I love it because I'm, I'm getting fed. Um, Andre's teaching, and he's just going through First Peter. First Peter is a book about... Suffering as part of the Christian life and allowing your life to be used by the glory of God, in the glory of God, as you suffer and trusting in Christ. And, and this suffering is not a sadomasochistic, I want to just, you know, hit myself and beat myself. It's actually a suffering looking unto Christ. And he talks about suffering, about submitting to our authorities in verse 13. And then he talks about uh, servants or slaves in that culture, verse 18, of those who are suffering unjustly. But he gives this, this is the heartbeat of First Peter. And if you would go with me, I'm going to read verses 21 to 25. But we're only going to look at verses 24 and 25 this morning. For you have been called for this purpose. Notice, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being reviled, he did not revile in return. 
While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. You look at verse 21 and you think about why would anyone ever want to suffer? Our culture is never a suffering culture. In fact, we get mad if we have to stay in line over two minutes. My patience wears thin if I'm in a drive through and, and I don't get my burger fast enough. That just shows how American and how easy I have things. And yet Jesus says, the word of God says that, he says, for you have been called. You're going to have to, this is going to be a hard text. If you've been used to the gospel of prosperity and the gospel of health, wealth, and everything's good for you, and and there's never going to be any hard times. If you're used to that kind of gospel, which is a false gospel, you're not going to make heads or tails of this. You're going to have to take a black marker and cross this out. Because the Bible is very straightforward. says, you have been called for this purpose. What purpose? Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. In other words, that part of the Christian life, part and parcel of growing in Christ, if you are a Christian, you are to follow the Savior, follow the Master, as sometimes you will have to endure unjust suffering for the gospel. And so he he lays it on thick, Peter says. Peter knows too. And Peter is one, you got to understand, Peter's the kind of guy who doesn't like that kind of stuff. If you recall, they were going to take away his Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane. And what does Peter do? Peter is a man's man. I kind of like Peter, dude. Peter says, you're not taking my Savior. He whips out a sword and he tries to chop one of the guards' heads off. And the guard, I, I don't think he was aiming for the ear. You know how the ear, he get, in the scriptures it says he sliced one of the guy's ears off. I don't think he was aiming for the ear. No one aims for the ear, right? He probably went like this, shoom, and Jesus healed that guard's ear, saying, Uh, He was supposed to go peacefully. But having said that, Peter is not one to suffer unjustly. And God showed him this is the way. The servant is not greater than the master, is he? And so you have this weight of, and, and it helps us in this, especially in our society right now. Being a Christian is like a sore thumb. Everyone sees you if you're living as a Christian. In the schools, in the workplace, you are the anomaly. You hold on to biblical values, biblical values of creation and biblical values of marriage, biblical values of sexuality, biblical values of right and wrong. You will stick out and you're going to suffer unjustly. And so Peter addresses this to people who are already doing it. But he doesn't say, hey, Sis, boom, ba, you guys can do it. It's not some kind of cheerleader. Go, go, go. 
You can do it. You have the strength. He doesn't do that at all. In fact, he gives them a vision of what Christ has done. And brothers and sisters, with this vision of Christ, I dare say, you can endure anything in Christ. That sounds like a big, tall tale, Angelo. No, this is what Peter is saying. And we hear later was crucified upside down. So what does Peter do? He talks about Christ as our example, but more than an example. He's not just an example. That's where the world stops. The world says that he's an example, a good teacher, but they do not say he is the savior, sacrifice for sin, an atonement. That is the that is the heart, that is the white hot center of Christianity. And so he says, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. And then he talks about how Christ was arrested without threatening, how he kept entrusting himself. Notice in verse 23. And in verse 24 and 25, he tells the believers who have been scattered to remember this. And uh, isn't this an appropriate sermon for communion? To remember, to remember that he bore it all. Sometimes we do forget, especially when we're suffering. We do forget. We can't see past what's happening. My financial problem. My broken relationship. A wayward sinner. A tough situation at work. Sometimes you can't see past it. And God says, by his word, you have a Christ. This morning's passage is given to you so that you would never forget what Christ has done for you on the cross. On the cross. Now, contextually, we already know about this suffering, but if you're in a low condition in life... There is no better comfort for you than knowing that your lowly Savior bore your sins with a long-suffering and a trust in the Father. And if you are called to suffer undeservedly, if you are mocked and slandered, be comforted in knowing the one who knew no sin bore his suffering patiently if you're a believer in Christ this morning you know that there is no comfort like the cross the dead cross the dead cross beams of wood bears the sweetest fruit of life to the unbeliever isn't it there are three reminders today I want to remind you if you want to follow along there's outlines there uh, I remember I'd, Lydia and Roy didn't know there were outlines, so I want to let you know there's outlines over there. And uh, you can get it, receive it digitally if you want to get on the list, but there are three reminders today. Number one, remember Jesus paid for your sins. I don't, this is what we are here for, to remind ourselves. And I like to call communion, this is the pause button on life. This is why we exist This is why we are here. Because Jesus paid for your sins. 
and he paid for my sins. If you all know the Savior, he paid for your sins. Now he says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Now, that is a very, very, very pregnant phrase. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. And I want to take a dissection to it and look at it carefully. Uh, My friend took me out and my family out to uh, a restaurant in Temecula and he says you've got to have these steak tacos right? and I went there with him and he treated our family and he says the flavor in it and it was, it was really it was actually quite tasty the fajita was tasty I didn't like to go too fast because they were so good I was hungry so I ordered three I know I know maybe I should have just ordered two but I ordered three and I chewed on it slowly. And me and Jeanette were looking at each other like, I don't want it to go too fast, so I'm just going to go slow. Maybe in a like manner, maybe we could just kind of chew on the beauty and the wonder of what Christ has done for you this morning. And maybe by God's grace, by his spirit, he would encourage you, oh, hurting believer, Maybe he would draw you this morning. So number one, in this phrase, I think the first thing to remember, remember Jesus paid for your sins. Jesus is the sole payment for your sins. Jesus is the sole payment for your sins. Notice he uses, in the original language, he uses he himself. And it comes right over in in the English. He himself. That's a reflexive pronoun for you grammarians out there. Stressing the action was done completely and solely by him. Jesus did not send a servant, did not send an angel, did not serve, send a lackey. In fact, Jesus was the servant. Yes, before any talk of serving God, what we like to do, we're talking about serving God. Before any talk of serving God should be entertained, know first that Christ served you by voluntarily paying for your sins. You need to be reminded, believer, of that. He sent no other substitute. He didn't delegate this part of the job. He sent, he came by himself voluntarily. In our language, sometimes you might hear stuff. Folks say, well, if you want a job done right, you have to, what, do it yourself. Sometimes people say that. And I understand that sentiment. Jesus did not pass the buck to anyone. He himself, second person of the Trinity, put it upon himself to take the sacred task himself and himself alone for you, believer. Secondly, not only is he the sole payment for your sins, he is the finished payment for your sins. Notice Jesus is the finished payment and in the text he himself bore in the past tense this is the past tense it's this this word means to to bring up to take up 
to take away, to carry it. Literally, he carried it away. He carried your sins away, past tense. It's a finished work, brothers and sisters. Jesus bore your sins on the cross and bears it no more. He has finished his work and now sits at the right hand of God. And I I think what sometimes when we start to think wrongly about what forgiveness is, if you are truly a Christian, you're truly saved, all of your sins have been met at the cross. Do you understand that? And sometimes even as Christians, you may be saved, but you're, what's happening is you might be even beating yourself up for the sins you have done in the past. You could have even walked in through this door, beating yourself up over and over and over again, and not living in forgiveness, walking in forgiveness, not remembering he bore it all on the cross. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 28 says, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, (coughs) will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. He was offered once to bear the sins of many. Not only is he the sole payment for sins, for your sins, Not only is he the finished payment for your sins, but he is the personal payment. He is the personal payment for your sins. Notice notice the personal pronoun, personal possessive pronoun. He says, our sins. And you could really say it's not anyone else's but our. And the our are those who are included in the body of Christ. I think this is a, a... a a tremendous, tremendous truth to really just stop and think about this. That it wasn't a general crucifixion. It wasn't a general kind of spraying of blood for our sins. It is a very, very personal one. In fact, he thought of each of believers who have trusted in him. You mean to say that my personal sins, my personal sins, Angelo's personal sins, the ones I've committed, the ones that I've done against people, the things I have said, the things I have thought, even my nature that is apart from Christ desires no authority over me. You mean to say he thought of me? Yes, that's what the text means. Our sins, brothers and sisters. I think we get too abstract when we talk about the gospel and 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 this and rightly so we talk about the gospel that God he made you and you were to glorify him but we have sinned and has been separated from him and we will go to hell apart from his work and he sends his son and the bible says that if we trust fully in his son and we repent from our sins that is we turn away from the world and our sins and we trust solely in what god has done in christ jesus on the cross that we will be saved 
We can say it like this, but brothers and sisters, I remember when it happened to me where it's no longer in the abstract where it jumps out of the pages of Scripture. It's your sin, Angelo. It's your sin he paid for. It's your sin that you did that. And he forgave you of it. Notice, 2 Corinthians, keep your finger there. In this famous verse, (laughs) Paul, he includes himself. He's not so religious to say, I don't need him. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, He made him, God the Father made him, Christ the Son, who knew no sin, that's who we know it is, Christ, to be sin on our behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Paul puts himself in the text saying that God to Christ made him take upon our sins upon him on that cross when he bore it for us. He put it on him. There was this great exchange of, of, this, of this, all I could give to him was my sin. I gave him my sin and he gave me his righteousness. And it was exchanged there on the cross. And Paul says, I'd be lost without it. Paul, you're so religious. You know the Bible, you've memorized the Talmud. You know it. And yet Paul says, I'm lost without him. And brothers and sisters, we need to stop and to think that's what he did for me. He made that personal payment. He made him. Look at the, look at the, um, the pronouns. The possessive pronoun here. Who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that he might become the righteousness of God in him. That's why I don't like to talk about the gospel as a really a plan. I don't like to talk about the gospel as an option because it's not a plan that would fail. In fact, the gospel was a definite payment for your sins. Look at Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. Notice he says this. Watch. Watch. The possessive pronouns again. Verse 4. And follow with me and just watch it. Highlight it. Highlight it with your mind. Look at it. It says in verse 4. Isaiah 53 verse 4. Surely our griefs he himself bore. And our sorrows he carried away. So you could rightly say, if you're a believer in Christ, when Christ was on the cross 2,000 years ago, he bore my sins. He was pierced through for our transgressions. Notice, 
He was crushed for our iniquities, the chastening of our well-being. By his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. This is later quoted in the text. Each of us have turned his own to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all, those who are the people of God, those who have trusted in Christ, to fall on him. Back in First um, Peter, that's why the psalmist, doesn't the Bible say, as far as the east is from the west, so far he removed our transgression from us. My friends, sometimes we adopt worldly views of forgiveness, which are not biblical at all. Especially like perhaps you might say things like, you know, I know that God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. That there is nowhere in the scriptures that say you need to forgive yourself. In fact, you're saying that Christ's payment that is satisfactory to God the Father is not satisfactory to you. The Bible says that he has taken our sins and has moved them far as the east is from the west. So Jesus is the sole payment for our sins. He is the finished payment for your sins. He is the personal payment for your sins. Jesus is the appropriate payment for your sins. You notice the word there, sins. It was the exact and proper payment for sins. Even from the Old Testament, we knew that there needed to be blood for sins. But what's amazing is just as nothing can be at two places at the same time, neither can your sin be on you and upon Christ at the same time, my friends. If your sins are on Christ, your sins are taken away. If your sins are on you and you've not trusted in Christ, it is your sins are on you. But your sins cannot be both on Christ and on you. If you have trusted, he has borne it away. Banish the thought that you need to earn for forgiveness. Banish the thought that you have to earn it, that you have to work for it, that, that you need to beat yourself over the head enough. God has paved the way for you by bearing it upon his son if you trust in him. That is the gospel, my friends. In there is freedom, my friends. For if the Savior bore your sins and then took them away, they are gone forever. I love how Micah says this in Micah 7.19. If you want to jot it down. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all of their sins into the depths of the sea. It is the appropriate payment because it is the only satisfying atonement for God the Father. There is nothing. This is why the Bible, and this is why folks call Christians pig-headed, narrow, 
not open-minded. I'm sorry. The Bible says there is a narrow way. The Bible says there is only one name by which men can be saved. The man Christ Jesus. The Bible says, as Jesus said, that uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's why in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2 it says, And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. The only satisfying and fragrant aroma that is in the nostrils, if I could say that, in the nostrils of God the Father is Jesus Christ himself. It is the only appropriate payment because it is the only one that satisfies God. Jesus is not only the sole payment for sins. He is not only the finished payment for sins. He is not only the personal payment for sins. He is not only the appropriate payment for sins. Jesus is the highest payment for sins. We recall in the phrase as we look again, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Spurgeon said it this way he did not handle our sins with golden tongs or a stick as to not touch the hideousness of our sins, but rather he bore it on himself. On his body. This is why the book of Hebrews is wonderful. He says, uh, But a body, this is what the Messiah says, a body thou hast prepared for me. In 1 John it says, uh, No greater love is this that a man would give his life for his friends. And that's what our Savior did. He gave his body, the body that was given to him, to suffer every tinge of pain. Yes, brothers and sisters, the reason why he received a body is so that he can feel the full range of pain. The full range of suffering for our condition to pay for us. And so you have the beatings that he received and the scourgings. But not only that, but you have the mockings. And even deeper than that, you have the betrayal of Judas Iscariot. And you have the abandonment of his friends. All of that full range of pain Jesus himself felt in his body. And he did that so he would experience it for you and me. Brothers and sisters, there's no higher price to pay than the Messiah's own body for you. He would receive also an abandoning of that fellowship, that sweetness of fellowship with God the Father. Next, not only... Was Jesus the sole payment for your sins? He himself. Not only is he the finished payment for your sins, he bore. Not only is he the personal payment for your sins. Not only is he appropriate payment for your sins. Not only is he the highest payment for your sins. But Jesus is the undeserved payment for your sins. And I say undeserved because he didn't deserve it. 
we think that a good death, and it is a good death, is sitting in bed at home with your loved ones around you, singing hymns to you. That's not the kind of death our Savior had. Our Savior heard mockery as he struggled to breathe. He had to pull up on the nails with his wrists. Pull up because he was suffocating. And we know there's been many victims of crucifixion. And each time he tried to breathe, he would have to pull up. And then he would feel the ripping of his back again against the cross every single time. And then he would sink back. And most of the crucifixion victims, they would just leave them there and die of suffocation later. He is undeserved because the spotless, sinless Lamb of God received the worst of sentences for you. Look at these verses. Um, Look at Galatians chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 3. Paul uses this language again. In Galatians chapter 3. In verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Having become a curse for us. For it is written. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So if you don't know, this was a quote from the Old Testament saying that anyone who is executed and hung on a tree is to be accursed. Accursed of God. You're to look at that person and say, that is a person accursed of God. And so what Christ did is he willingly took on this curse of God upon himself. For us. In Philippians chapter 2, in Philippians, turn with me. You'll see in, in Paul's mind, he never veers, he never veers from his vision of Christ and his Christianity and his Christ, he always sees. As the one who endured the blood and the glories to follow. Notice in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5. We know that this is, this is called the condescension of Christ. The condescension of Christ in verses 5 to 8. And this is the motivation. Notice in Christianity, my friends, if, again, I have to say this. If you've heard, it, if you've gone to places and churches where... Folks say, you know, you need to be good for goodness sake. There's no such thing in the Bible. You cannot be good for goodness sake. That's only good for secular uh, uh, Christmas carols. Not having to do with Christ at all. You cannot be good for goodness sake. Why? Because you don't have the heart for it. You don't have the resources in and of yourselves to be good for goodness sake. You need the Christ. And this is what Paul says. He always talks about the cross. This is why he always says, I, will, I have determined to know nothing 
among you except Christ and him crucified. It is not only what saves us, it's not only the key that opens the door to salvation, but it is also the sustenance, the sufficiency that keeps me going in the Christian life. And so there's fights in the church. In, in the book of Philippians, and notice the only thing that's going to squash the fights is Christ himself. Folks who are dedicated to Christ, folks who want to glorify Christ. And he says in uh, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. And he doesn't leave it there. This attitude is one of humility. And so he takes it all the way to the cross. You cannot be humble in the church. You're just going to keep fighting in the church. Because in, in the book of Philippians, there was a fight between two women. And he takes it all the way to the cross. He doesn't say be good for goodness sake. He doesn't say be good because it's nice. That was a discussion we had in equipping hour. He says, be, he says humble yourselves because God in Christ Jesus did this. And he says he existed in the form of God. Did not regard equality with God. A thing to be grasped. So notice God the son. Is equal with God the father. He says he already has equality with God. That's the implication. But he emptied himself. That is he disregarded it. He didn't hold on to it. His rights and his privileges. He emptied himself. Taking the form of a bondservant. So Christ from glory on high lowered himself to the bond servant and then he says and being made in the likeness of men so then he lowered himself to the likeness of men putting on the body that's what we talked about so that he would die for our sins and then it says being found in appearance as a man he humbled himself being obedient to the point of death so then he dropped a little bit lower down to the point of death and the lowest the lowest Christ went for us is he says even death on a cross and the reason why it was that low is because even the cross could not be mentioned in polite society. It was a vulgar thing to speak about it at dinner parties. You don't talk about the cross because it was such a vulgar death. And yet Paul says he bore our sins on the cross unashamedly, brothers and sisters. In this undeserved payment that Christ did not, he did not deserve to be Mur uh, killed in this way. Our Lord carried the burden of our sins up to the tree and there and then he made an end of it. This is why this is why the apostle uh, excuse me this is why John the Baptist when he saw Christ, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So, no matter how mature you become as a Christian, no matter how much you grow, I hear folks say, Well, I want to get beyond the cross. I, I, I think I need to grow a little bit more. You know, my friend, you've already slipped. No Christian gets beyond the cross. We could study the cross over and over and be enamored with this Christ. So number one, we need to remember, remember it, that Jesus paid for your sins. 
bearing it on the tree. Secondly, remember, Jesus changed your life. Jesus changed your life. In verses 24b and 24b to, I want to say to 24c, I think I might have messed up there. Jesus changed your life. Notice this phrase in verse, back at First uh, Peter chapter two and two twenty four. Remember, back in First Peter, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So that we might die to sin. The first change that Jesus does, one of the changes that's listed here, is that sin disgusts you. That is a Christian. Sin disgusts you. That we might die to sin. And you see this, theologically, you see this in two ways. Okay, First, positionally or legally. Or forensically, you can call it. That's what the Bible calls it. Positionally or legally or forensically. God demands a just payment for your rebellion of sin. So this is what the Bible talks about when we are justified. You'll see this word of justification all over the scriptures. And what that means is that when God looks upon you and you trust in Christ, what he does is God, the Father, credits Christ's righteousness in your account. So when he looks upon you, he sees you positionally with the perfect righteousness of Christ. Now that's amazing in itself. Positionally, forensically, legally, you are declared righteous. It's an amazing, amazing thought. But, not only that, because another has paid that price who is not guilty, who is righteous and holy and splendor. He died in your stead. But not only that, practically, so there's a positionally and there's a practically. Positionally, we are holy before God the Father. Practically, it is worked out. Okay? So practically, if you have repented of your sins and turned to Christ, the Holy Spirit has made you practically dead to sin as well. Experientially dead to sin as well. So what does that mean? It means that sin has no dominion over you anymore, believer. Now you may not be a perfect believer. None of us are. But you know that you are no longer under the slavish commands of sin anymore. Sin is no longer welcome in, your, in the home of your heart. And if it does come in, it's an unwelcome intruder. You are no longer its willing slave. It can't tell you what to do. You are dead to its enticements and its allurements. And even if you may sin, your will is not to. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 7, I do the things that I hate, I don't want to do, that I ought not do. For you, believer, it would be heaven to be sinless, isn't it? 
brothers and sisters? Don't you want to be sinless? You want to be practically what you are already positionally. And in fact, growing in Christ is you becoming practically practically what you already are positionally. You're becoming more and more of who you are in Christ. That's your identity. Your heart and your soul, though, goes after growth in Christ and sin is hated in the depths of your soul. You hate it now. It's an amazing thing. When you come to Christ... There is, this, there is this strange change in you. This, this amazing work in you. It's called regeneration. Where you no longer, where before you would love your sin and you hated righteousness and you don't want to do what the Lord wants you to do. Even though you know it to be true and good and right. You would even agree with your mind that this is good and true and right. You don't want to do it. You don't want the Lord over you. And then what happens is when you come to Christ and he grants you faith and you believe in him, you no longer want to do the things of sin, but you want righteousness and you thirst after the things you hated and you hate the things you used to thirst for. That's salvation. That's transformation. Those who have experienced the new birth want no business with sin. He or she is both positionally and practically dead to sin. Your true self hates sin and if you do fall, you no longer like to muck about in the mud. But you want to escape the vileness of sin as fast as you can. The Bible says, remember Jesus changed your life. Sin disgusts you. Disgusts you. Second, righteousness thrills you. It thrills you. You hunger for righteousness. He says, and live to righteousness. This as well is both positionally and practically. Positionally, we are in Christ. All of us have his perfect righteousness, as we've said before, credited to our account, such that when God looks upon us, the perfect righteousness of his own son is what he sees. He doesn't look at you and sees the best version of you. He looks at you and sees the best version or the best perfect specimen that is Christ himself of righteousness on you. He looks at you and he sees the very righteousness of Christ. It's an amazing, amazing thing. But practically, we are alive to righteousness. We're dead to sin, but alive to righteousness. We are sensitive and desirous to be holy, pleasing to God. His atoning death, brothers and sisters, brings us life. We are now in what Paul calls the newness of life. I, don't, I can't even describe it to you. I, I want you to jump in if you don't know him. This is something that I, I can explain to you. I could tell you. It's very much like if you've never had honey. And I want to explain that it's sweet and it's delicious and it's syrupy. But you don't understand it unless you taste it. We have tasted of God. Taste and see, the Bible says, that the Lord is good. We have tasted of him. And he's good. 
So that now what has happened, it, I, I guess when I was saved, I, I, I knew the arguments before I was a Christian. I, I actually agreed that Christ died on the cross. But just because you agree with those facts does not mean you are saved. You could agree with the facts of the gospel. But it is not until you trust and repent. Trust in Christ and repent of your sins. That is salvation. So practically we are alive to righteousness. We're sensitive and desirous to be holy. Pleasing to God. His atoning death brings us life. We no longer live for ourselves, but for Jesus. And this is what happens to a believer. You will sin. If you do sin, you can't stand it in yourself and you need to get right. You need to ask God for forgiveness or you have to ask forgiveness from a person that you have sinned against. Or if someone shows you your sin, you have to say, please forgive me, I've sinned. I don't want to sin against you nor my Savior. Thirdly, under, remember Jesus changed your life. Sin disgusts you. Righteousness thrills you. Lastly here, wholeness marks you. By his wounds you were healed. It's amazing. This healing is not over diseases, as some folks would teach. This healing is not over sicknesses. This is a spiritual healing. And we know that that is a quote directly taken from Isaiah 53. He's talking about how sins heal us spiritually. This is a mentally whole and stable person in Christ. If you want a mentally stable person, they need to be mentally stable in Christ. Christ is what gives you the grounding to stand on. These can be, these wounds that you carry can be the scars of your own sins. Oh, we, we pay the consequences of the things we have done in this world. You may even be forgiven, but you know that there are still consequences of what you have done. But God says you can be healed of that. Not in recovery, as some of the groups say. And you're always recovering. You're always recovering, you understand? That's what the 12-step programs say. You're always recovering or I'm always in recovery. What are you? I'm in recovery. I'm in recovery. I'm in recovery. The Bible says you are in Christ. You become recovered. Healed. I have seen this. I have witnesses. I have seen drug addicts get saved and put down the pipe. I've seen alcoholics put down the bottle and love their families. I have seen healing. I have seen families with kids with so many different parents Blended together, redeemed, kids loving Christ, and you wouldn't know the difference. That's the healing that Christ brings. 
He is not just simply some theoretical idea, some, some theological constructs for you to hold, and then something else, you go to other places for healing. Brothers and sisters, he says he brings healing. He says you can be healed from the sins you've done and from the sins that have been done upon you, the abuse, all oh, the the sexual abuse, the trauma that people have received, you can receive healing in Christ. Yes, you can. Or perhaps I'm just too simplistic to believe what the Word of God says about what Christ can do. He can make you whole again, brothers and sisters. Remember, Jesus paid for your sins. Remember, Jesus changed your life. And remember, Jesus protects your soul. And just real briefly, before his care, you were continually straying like sheep. Notice, sheep, from what I hear and from what I read, I've never been a farmhand, but sheep are ignorant and dumb. So sometimes when we hear the Bible calls us sheep, we go, oh, we're cute and fluffy. No, the Bible's telling us we're ignorant and dumb. Probably one of the animals with the least intelligence. They're kind of the animals that probably shouldn't be alive because they just keep harming themselves. And in fact, you've probably seen this video clip of this farmer rescuing this sheep out of this uh, ditch that's in the ground and he pulls out the sheep after working and working and pulls that sheep out and then he frees the sheep and the sheep goes woo bounces bounces and goes right back in we're nothing more than ignorant sheep but now we are his sheep amen he's going to take care of me He's going to shepherd me. He's going to guide me. Sheep are also not only ignorant and dumb, but prone to wander. Straying, the the word says, leaving. Sheep are so happy to leave. They're so delighted in it and not knowing the danger that lurks around the corner. Sheep, we wander due to ignorance and we wander due to temptation. Sheep have no desire to return. Sometimes my dog gets out and he's a stubborn dog, but he'll, he'll come back. Little ranger. He'll come back because he gets hungry. Cats come home, even though you don't want them to. They always come back. Sheep do not. The only reason we don't persist in our own self-destructive wandering is because someone stronger draws us back. And you know, when your heart has been wandering and you've been playing in the muck and the filth, you, need to, you know you need to get right with the Savior. And you know he'll take you back. Isn't that the sweetness of Christ? The sheep are always in danger, in danger of wolves and other predators that are stealthy beasts. But... In his care, now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. He is the shepherd. In fact, the Bible says in John chapter 10 that we no longer want to listen to other shepherds. We don't want to listen to other experts in sin's voice. 
We, before we knew Christ, we were so ready to follow any of the influencers or supposed experts in the world. But now the sheep hear the voice of the Savior and they don't want to follow the voice of strangers. They will not follow others. That's how you know that's a Christian. They follow the voice of Christ. And this is not an audible voice, my friends. This is the voice as is outlined in the word of God. Spurgeon said it this way. I like the way he says it. He says, we're no longer under the influence of the world. If you are a Christian, you hear the shepherd's voice. He says, faith in Jesus creates a sacred independence of mind. I love the way he said that. You're now set free from the world. You don't care what the world says about you anymore. You don't care what the world values anymore. You don't care what the world's chasing after anymore. You just want to follow Jesus, be faithful, live a quiet life, and love Christ. Amen? That's a sweet life, my friends. That's a life worth living. Later on, he says, not only the shepherd and guardian of your souls. This word guardian is the same word that's used for overseer, guardian, leader, bishop. It's also used, uh, it's one of the three words used to describe an elder, pastor, overseer. It's the same person. But this is the, the great overseer. He is the one who watches over your souls. And as as. Ty eloquently told us in uh, our equipping hour, the first hour, there is no way that a human person, Jeremy and I, we're the elders, we're the overseers, can ever possibly give you everything you need. And that's why we are so glad that the great guardian, the great shepherd, shepherds your souls. So I've left some questions for a lunch table discussion if you want to speak to each other about it. Sometimes you might have problems or difficulties. Sometimes you're not used to speaking about spiritual things uh, with your family. Or maybe dads, you're not used to uh, leading spiritual discussions. I've wrote some questions to make it easy. Really easy. Uh, So if you're sinking your teeth into an In-N-Out burger today, you could say, has Jesus paid for your sins? Are your sins paid for? Do you trust only in him and repent of your sins? Or maybe, if so, how has Jesus changed your heart to hate sin and love righteousness? Or how has Jesus healed you? Or what are differences between how the world leads and how Jesus shepherds? So maybe that would help you. I hope that helps you. If you guys don't like those questions and stuff, I I could always X them out, you know. But I thought it would be helpful uh, just so that you could benefit more from the sermon as, uh, as the Sunday progresses and as you dwell and think about him getting ready for your week. But why don't we pray and just thank him for bearing our sins on the tree. Father, we thank you for your righteousness and your goodness. We thank you for this pause on our life. To still our souls. And to be filled up with the Savior. Help us. Help us to trust in you. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus name. Help us to sing. Amen.